What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Chaplain Peggy has been a victim and patient advocate for over 20 years. She found her calling after America faced mass tragedy on September 11, 2001. After that day, she felt forced to answer a deeper call to serve her community, especially for those members in greater need. She also is co-host of the impactful podcast Near Death with Nikki Boyer, on which she shares more about her grief work. This conversation with Chaplain Peggy is deeply appreciated. This is also the very first interview we have conducted with an advocate who does not identify as a victim herself, but who has brought much healing and support to the victim community. And it won't be the last. The Broken Cycle Media team is so very grateful for Peggy's work with victims and other patients alike as well as this candid conversation about the intricacies of her experiences as a chaplain in the most populous county in the United States. I am Chaplain Peggy. I grew up in Minnesota. I was surrounded by water on a lake. Water's a big part of how I care for myself. Minnesota has weather and change. It kind of reminds you how you're not that powerful. As a kid, you had severe extremes in weather in Minnesota. It's a really incredible lesson for children to grow up in that kind of environment. You just learn to humble down. You have to accommodate nature. You have to accommodate the earth. It's not accommodating you. Okay, we're going to get the soup on. We're going to hunker in. We're going to shovel us out. When I first came to Los Angeles, I remember those days when it was really nice out all the time. And if you stayed inside, I felt this weird guilt because in Minnesota, if it's a nice day, get out there and take it in. It was a real big change for me. I missed the wind and thunderstorms and rain. I grew up in an Irish Catholic home. We would go to mass every Sunday. It wasn't very super religious, but we definitely were Catholic. I remember my mom told me a story that we had this little dog, this little mutt who was adorable. I was six years old and I was walking her in the neighborhood. One of the neighbor ladies came out to me and she asked me what kind of dog she was. And I said, she's a Catholic. So that tells me that I was pretty immersed in being a Catholic kid. <laughs> I was born right when Vatican II happened. It was a big shift in the Catholic Church. 
We were always in Sunday school and Catholic catechism classes. I love the theatrics of it. We call it the smells and the bells and Catholicism, the frankincense and all that wonderful stuff stayed. But then this sort of creative Catholic church happened where all the nuns didn't have to be in habits. We had this handsome, cool, young priest. We called him Father Waterways because he was really cute. I remember in one of my Sunday school classes, they would play these records. They just bring in their albums from home. They're wearing their moccasins and their leather vests. But I had sort of this innate sense of spirit and joy. I just assumed that everybody had that. I just had this little light within me that I was like, God and grace and everything. I started teaching Sunday school. We did a lot of sitting in the lawn outside the church with bird seed to feed the birds and bless them. I kind of went off script a lot and the Monsignor wasn't always thrilled with me, but I didn't want to do hard doctrine. I got rerouted actually into chaplaincy from 9-11. The kiddos that I was teaching Sunday school to at the time were incredibly changed by the event and they were just little ones. They were six and seven year olds. So I changed my path in a way, although all of that training and improv and comedy I did before serves me very well in this work. But I remember sitting out on the lawn with them at the church. The parents were coming early to bring their kids to Sunday school. Please, they're not sleeping. Help us. They were so changed from that last Sunday. They had sort of a age to them that they didn't have before. There was sort of a wash of sorrow and confusion. Like all children, they want to be part of the help. They want to be the helpers. They want to be part of whatever can be good in that innate place within them. I think that's how we kind of roll when we're little. They were just devastated. They were like, Miss Peggy, why did this happen? And is my dad going to die when he goes to work? All these super huge existential questions, six, seven-year-olds, and they were not sleeping. They were standing over their parents, watching them sleep to make sure they were okay. It was really profound. And I remember I just stayed with them. I met them where they're at, and that's what spiritual care is. I think what's going on now in the world is very similar to the things that I'm hearing patients talk about with me now and is really bringing me back to that time because I remember the kiddos, I have the utmost respect for children. I feel they're an entirely complete human being with a rich, deep inner life and wisdom. It's really important to meet them where they're at and just be a safe place to fall in those really incredibly difficult questions. It doesn't mean I have the answers for it. I can't fix anything right now. But just being that safe presence for them was what I could do and let them really wrestle and just be there while they're wrestling. It really affected me and I thought, I can do this. When I first came to Los Angeles, I actually came here to be an actress, like 20 bazillion other women in their young age. You're so self-propelled as an actress, it's just so hard. You're constantly pitching yourself, which is really uncomfortable. So I said, okay, I got to do something more. 
not that I'm saying acting isn't incredible because it is. Television, film profoundly change people's lives and it gives us escape, education and healing. It's a wonderful industry. But I was like, what can I do with what I just learned from these kids? That's when I started the journey to become a chaplain and it was a big one. I have been a chaplain in a hospital for about 20 years. It's a great question to ask what a chaplain is because I think people often associate it with war most of the times, and that's kind of where it originated. It was people out on the field, priests, rabbis, and ministers with people dying on the field, like the MASH TV show, Father Mulcahy. It's a clinical role. I'm an actually certified clinical chaplain, so that means that I went through a lot of training, clinical pastoral education in the hospital setting, like a resident doctor or anyone in the field would do. You put the hours in. As you're doing that, you're being supervised, you're writing verbatims, you're learning about all these different family systems, mental health, and all these wonderful things that we get to learn about. And then you're actually doing the work. You're on call and you're visiting people in traumatic situations. I've been doing this for a long time. I work with all kinds of patients, all faiths, ages, mental health patients, trauma patients, kiddos, NICU babies, families, geriatrics, ALS patients, everybody. Sometimes they're coming in with a heart attack or a gunshot. Sometimes they're coming out of a huge accident and they're just learning they're in the hospital for the first time. I've had lots of adults that have had horrific things happen to them. I worked at a hospital for a while and all I did was the emergency department. It was in a very intense area of Los Angeles, and there was a lot of gang activity. I got to learn and know the gangs, and that most of them had come from trauma, and we're sort of repeating the cycle. It's not fixed, it just keeps forwarding. What I found in my work with victims of crime in the hospital, even from people that have been hit by a drunk driver and had horrific outcomes from that accident, or people who have been stabbed or shot, all of these horrible things that I've seen, you have this yourself, Amy, on your podcast, for sure. All of a sudden, you're just going in the deep end within one minute of meeting somebody. You can't walk in with an agenda. It's really about meeting people where they're at and coming into the room as a spiritual care. I'm here to care for your spirit. So I enter asking, how's your spirit? The doctor would be like, how's the pain today? I'm asking how the pain is too, but I'm talking about spiritual pain, emotional pain. So it's about meeting people where they're at and trying to help them in any way you can. It might be you're just there to listen, reflective listening, and letting them hear what you're hearing, letting them understand where they're at right now in their faith. It's really about being a safe presence for people. Sometimes it's an acute situation. Somebody is coding. You're walking in and the family have seen that. You want to take care of them and contain the situation. Sometimes it's brand new babies coming into the world, having a difficult birth. Sometimes it's perfect babies that I get to bless. That's a super fun one. Or mommies on bed rest for a long time that are really anxious. Children will draw things. They draw their family and their home situation and they draw God in it. It shows you a lot. How big is everybody and where are they looking? I had one kiddo whose leg was broken really badly and very confusing way for the docs and 
spending time with him when the person that did this was in the home. We all suspected it. We all felt it. But there's such a delicate dance when you're trying to reveal truth and do it in a way that isn't going to ruin the opportunity for some kind of justice. It can be very delicate. My role being there for him and doing art with him, letting the art show us a lot. This little guy drew the picture of his dad and made his dad humongous, bigger than the home, bigger than the God image. And the hand on the father was huge. And he was looking away. He wasn't looking at the kids. And I got to explore the art with him and asked him about these things. Through that process, the revelation that the father was abusive in the home came out. We got to bring that to the social work and all the things that we, as mandated reporters, that we are. It was just so tender. And this kiddo was just such a dear, sweet, gentle boy. All I can do is be this safe space. If something's going to be revealed, if something's going to start to be healed, I can get that reactionary part where I'm just like, how can you hurt a child? And I have to bring myself into a very professional place. I have to get out of my own way, take myself out of the story and get in there to try to help as best I can. And sometimes truth is not always revealed. That's also something you have to deal with in this work at times. The guy that came into the emergency room just really beat up, really, really violently attacked to the edge of his life. And then I was his chaplain through his healing and then recovered long, long, long journey. And I was with him through the healing process till he went off to rehab. He had recovered as much as he could, but he was going to have permanent stuff from the crime. That's when I went to jury duty and I realized it was that case. I was sitting there and I was looking at the two alleged perps. An important thing that I learned from that case and just what I've learned over the years is that you can't be everything to all people. When you're advocating for someone that is a victim of something, there's so many different things, right? I couldn't be compassionate to everybody at the same level. I'm not capable of that. And that it's okay for us to say, I have to have boundaries about this. I know how I feel about this and it's a very intense feeling that I feel. And I'm not able to be this to everybody. In spiritual care, I'm going to be sometimes in the room with the people that have hurt that patient. And I'm going to be professional, but I can't put it on myself that I can have a deep level of understanding and compassion for everybody because I can't, it's not within me. So I have to give myself grace around that and say I can't be everybody's advocate at the same time. Sometimes you're preparing them to die. They just found out they're going to die. So you're walking on that journey with them. One of my big tools is life review in that sense of reminding them who they are. What have you gone through in the past? And what does that show you about who you are today? Some people are super pissed off at God. Makes sense to me. I understand it. So we want to talk about that. Some people are like, I have no faith. We talk about all the influences. It's kind of spiritual psychology in a sense that you're talking about the influences that 
shaped that person into what their faith is or is not. It's all completely different. Most of the time, it's mystery. But when you're going in to be that soft spot or that landing space for that person and a safe zone, you're being a receptacle. You just have to shape yourself for the situation. Sometimes I have these experiences in the room and I leave and go, wow, that was amazing. I'm with someone and they're dying and they're seeing angels while I'm standing there talking to people. Here comes their dad. Here comes their mom to come and help them step over. And they're seeing them so clearly. It's just so impactful to see the depth of the human spirit and the humanity that we have. I'm not saying every exchange and every patient has this profound arc. Some of them don't. Some are angry and are going to go out that way. That's something we talk about on the podcast, how you can die the way you live. I have been incredibly impacted coming from a Christian Catholic background to be in the presence of all different faiths as they die. That has been such a huge blessing. What I have learned and what I feel about it, I wish that was something that I could just put in a little bottle and share it with the world. I've been with Jewish people when they die, Muslim people when they die, Hindu, Buddhist, no faith, just spiritual, Baha'i, Mormon, Jehovah. I like to say there's no monopoly on grace. There's no monopoly on God. So it's all aspects. It's also a lot of staff care, checking in on staff. After the bombing in Israel on the 7th, we did a vigil for peace. It was the rabbi, myself, one of the priests, and another Jewish chaplain. We all said prayers for peace from our own hearts, from what we wanted to pray for in an inclusive way. It was music and 350 staff showed up. So it's pretty incredible. Those are part of what we do. We are working with cops, firemen in the coroner department, and sometimes press. All these different people that come into these stories, you can hear why they became a cop. It's super interesting. It's very, very fascinating because you see what roles they're in and the lanes they stay in. But firemen and the cops are very different roles, yet they work together super close. And it's like a band of brothers. They have these respect for each other. It really deeply affects them. What do they rely on? How do they sustain themselves without burning out? Because they do burn out and they get really exhausted. They're coming in and they're trying to help solve what's going on. There's so many things that go into the work for them. If a tender case comes into the emergency room, you would be amazed at how they just stand vigil and they'll all be standing together just waiting outside that trauma room as much as they can. I remember going up to this cop that looked like the toughest guy in the group. Oh, I'm going to pick that guy because he might need it the most. He was just like, I've been praying the whole time, chaplain. I'm just standing here praying. I said, can I pray with you? And he took my hand and I could hear his breath. We were just praying together real quietly. And I was like, wow, this badass looking cop is just standing here praying for this person that got shot and is laying there trying to fight for their lives. You get to see some really tender, beautiful pieces of the public servants that I don't know everybody gets to see. It's a real privilege for me. 
that's been the through line for me. I've had days where I come down and I'm like, Rabbi, I can't believe you pay me. And he's like, I'll call HR. No, no, no. Believe me, I want my dental insurance. I hate being on call. That's a terrible <laughs> part of the role. At this point, after doing it so long, you're like, you really have to do on call? Getting called at three in the morning. And how am I going to rally? But you do. You rally and you do the work. Well, the main thing is my faith. That's the absolute main through line for me. It's really hard for me to not see some sort of nugget of grace in every tear. Even in 9-11, so many people were really impacted. People changed paths. People looked inward. There can be so much mercy in moments of connection to God when you're in the darkest depths of your pain to welcome that and look for it, whether it's how people rally or take care of each other, donate money, people show up. These kind of things that can happen in these horrific traumas where you don't have to look into the horrors of things, but to say, I don't want to waste this. I want to somehow find something within this that gives me something. I know there are times where we're like, there's nothing. And then you just have to say, it's too dark for me. And to know that you don't have to sit in that darkness forever. Things do move and change and little nuggets come. When I'm having incredibly weird days or really hard days or I come out of a death, I walk to my car. I'm like, Lord, just be with me. I'm not asking for any huge intervention. I just want to know that you're here. And I always feel that. I feel a warmth come over me. I feel like it's a little message. Like, I'm here. When we're grieving, if we can leave ourselves open to... That's the key. It's hard when pain shuts us down, locks us into a little bit of a cell. I'm certainly not trying to come at this from just my tradition, but any kind of connection where it's something bigger than us, whether it's the ocean or the sky or love or arts, music, touch people in ways that take them to the next place. And I think television, film, and art, it's a huge mitzvah to the world because you are caring for the caregivers, healing those that are trying to be healers. This thing that gives them a break and helps them laugh, have resilience and perspective. So I think it's an incredible gift to have any kind of art. I think podcast art, absolutely. All of these things that tell stories that get people out of themselves and have to stretch and look at the world from the other. If people can watch these things that touch them and bring them to all the dimensions of humanity, it's such a blessing. Near Death is on anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find it everywhere. Lemonada is the distributor. I think it's a nice little way to ease into some of the big existential questions that people may have in their life in a really palatable way. When you listen to the premiere, you understand how Nikki and I even connected. We connected over her best friend Molly's death, who I was the chaplain for. Molly was a non-religious Jew, and I saw her for a Reiki. We started this incredible arc. It was a four-year relationship I had with her. Dying for Sex was this amazing podcast that Nikki and Molly did together on her journey as she died very young. That's how Nikki and I met. 
We sat down for a seven hour date in my backyard with a bottle of good champagne. She asked me so many questions about my work and I was like, are you really interested in this? She said, I think we should talk about this. We can change lives, empower people. When Nikki and I first started talking about it, my hope was that if we can make just one person less afraid of death, then we've done something. Or if we give one person permission to wrestle with their faith and to start exploring some spiritual path for themselves, then I felt like this is great. We take you on a journey with us as two friends talking and exploring some of these really profound spiritual stories. Some are spooky, some are incredibly beautiful, some are funny, some are tragic. And we talk through them, we laugh and we cry. Angels Everywhere is an episode about me being with this patient as she shut off life support and was with me as clear as you and I are talking all the way to the end and her relaying what she was seeing coming into her room. That was an incredible privilege. I just kind of floated out of that room. That's one of my favorite episodes. There's one also where I'm advocating for a man who had poly substance abuse and a really, really hard life that wanted to not have any more interventions. He was very sick. The role of a chaplain advocating for his wishes to be honored, that was a profound privilege. It's been really pretty amazing. The feedback and the people that are writing me on Instagram, the feedback I'm getting, even from friends and people that have heard it. Somebody actually called the hospital and asked if they could have me pray with them. I'm learning that people are really hungry for spirituality. The messages I'm getting on Instagram are like, I'm finally wrestling with the grief around my mom's loss. That's why I wanted to step into having these conversations with advocates and different perspectives of what we discuss on the show, because I think it's important to have a full breadth of perspective. Any other tools or resources that help you pass through your own grief or anything that might be triggered along the way? It is the human condition. Life is so many series of losses. We're going to have to grieve all these little things. Just aging, you have to grieve. All the things that happen to us in our lives are little moments of grief and compassion. I think it's really important to have self-compassion. Hold your heart. Let yourself feel those feelings. Give yourself a break. Be kind to yourself. When you're going through intense losses, and even when you're in the presence of things that are really, really, really hard, you have to hold your heart have the compassion to say, what's happening right now is as bad as I think it is. If somebody was standing next to you saying, oh my God, this is really bad. Believe it for yourself. You have to move through it, but you can baby step it and you can let yourself be stuck. And then you can let yourself regress. Maybe you have to take a different angle, go on a different path. Grief, it is this fluid thing. It's so random and it comes whenever. You can make time for it. You can say, I'm going to make a date with my grief. I'm going to have 10 minutes where I just really wail and cry and feel the feelings. Then I'm going to step into this other space. You can allow yourself all that movement. And I'm sure you understand that, Amy. Grief is so complicated. It's such a mystery and everybody's grief is so different that you really have to be kind to yourself and realize what you're going through is incredibly hard. It's a journey. Some days the work is to just be. 
just get up, have your coffee, sit and be. And that might be all you can do that day. In Judaism, there's a saying about light coming through broken glass is the most beautiful light. The brokenness of us can be the biggest beauty, the best light. You're talking about a pivot 20 years ago that changed your perspective. The perspective you've gained through your experiences, how has that changed you? It really gets you out of your self. I think that all of us need that. All of us needs a space that we can really step aside and let whatever's happening in the moment be the most important thing. And I think that's what happened for me. That's the privilege. There's some times where I'm in these incredibly precious, privileged moments. The veil's very thin and people are stepping over and I'm seeing it. It really is a gift. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? My Instagram is Chaplain Peggy. If you listen to the podcast and you have thoughts about it, send me a, it's a DM. Is that what you say, Amy? Yes, it's a DM. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you and I appreciate your work. I totally appreciate everything you're doing and have done and your incredible journey that you're on still, I'm sure. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. My dad had impacted so many people in this area in the 40 years that he'd been here that there was going to be a lot of people that wanted to come pay their respects to him. I didn't want to have a service for him and not make that available for everyone. Part of the problem is my disability. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.